Sure. So the question is about, could I clarify right view, and is right view wisdom? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, anything else? <laughs> uh, uh, first, let me say that right view is the first of the factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? Right view and right thought, or right intention, are the two wisdom factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view uh, is the, the understanding of conditions that leads to the end of suffering for yourself and others. Okay? That's what makes it right. You know, the rightness of right view is that it conduces towards less suffering. Uh, wrong view is those beliefs and assumptions and uh, ways of seeing or understanding things that leads to suffering for yourself and others. So that's the rightness of it. <clears throat> and uh, Sariputta, the second in wisdom to the Buddha at the time of the Buddha, was asked one time by some monks, uh, having heard about right view, they were asking him, well, how do, what do, how do, we, uh, how do, how do we get right view? And he said there are two elements to establishing right view in your own heart, in your own mind. And the first element is you have to hear what right view is from someone else. Well, we're all 21st century, educated, bright, brilliant, you know, problem-solving, can-do people. And when somebody tells us that you can't figure this out for yourself, you need somebody to tell you about it, we'll say, huh? But what, what Sariputta was pointing to was the subtlety of the teachings uh, that the Buddha offered. And at once having heard right view, uh, as you know, Dharma practice is not about belief. It's not about, do you believe in right view? And if you do, therefore you're a good Buddhist and you're saved from suffering. It doesn't work that way. It's more like you hear right view, and then the second element that's necessary for establishing right view in your own heart is developing wise attention. So just hearing it is not going to establish it in your own mind. It's just, a, it's just somebody else's information at that point. But when you practice with right or wise attention, then you will begin to see and confirm through your own experience, oh, right, this is the way of understanding that leads to the end of mine and other suffering. But until you practice wise attention, it's just a matter of somebody else's information. But when you practice for yourself and you see in your own experience, oh, this belief or this assumption or this way of life leads to suffering, then you know. Or this way of life leads to the end of suffering for myself and others, then you know. Then it's a verified, uh, you have verified faith in these understandings because you have confirmed them through your own experience. So what is right view? There are a lot of right views. Um, and Sayadaw has mentioned uh, several of them. Several of them. I'm just going to list a few because they're endless. One is that uh, a right view of uh, the Dharma, for example, is that any Dharma practice, any Dharma practice, mindfulness of generosity, gratitude, loving kindness, mindful, uh, uh, insight or concentration, any of those, cultivates wholesome states of mind. So any practice that cultivates wholesome states of mind is, has, has to lead towards less suffering. Obvious. And in the process of cultivating wholesome states of mind, we tend to either suppress or uproot unwholesome states of mind, which we're all familiar with, right? Okay, so that's one right view about the Dharma. One right view about the kind of practice that we're doing here, and it's important to, to recognize that, is Sayadaw says 
in every moment something is being known. Well, we can hear that, but it seems like there's a lot of moments go by that <laughs> we don't know what's being known and we're not sure that we're knowing anything, right? And yet, once we start looking, we can see that, yeah, every moment something's being known. Now, let me point to this very familiar experience that we all have of we sit down, we've got just 45 minutes or half hour to pay attention to the present moment. And with all good intention and all of our most sincere effort, we try to pay attention and we fail miserably. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's my experience. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the mind is just lost in thought for some amount of time. At the beginning of the retreat, it's more of the time, and by the end of the retreat, it's less of the time. But isn't it amazing that with our best intention and all of our effort, and nothing else to do. <laughs> we can't, we can't track our moment-to-moment -moment experience for five minutes, without getting lost in some fantasy, some memory, some plan, some something. And when we're lost in that thought, I'll say when we're lost in that thought, or when the mind is wandering, or when we're unaware of the thinking that's going on, we don't know. We don't know anything. Right? We don't know what we're thinking. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know if we're sitting, standing, laying down. We don't know if we're a human or a dog. We don't know if we're <laughs> we don't know if we're a male or female. We don't we we don't know anything. We are completely ignorant. Excuse me. I mean I don't mean I don't mean to tell you something that you haven't already seen and confirm for yourself. But when we come out when when mindfulness remembers to notice the present moment again, sometimes we can get this instant snapshot of everything we've been thinking about for the last hour and a half, or minute and a half, however long your mind wanders, right? We can see everything that we thought about. Even though at the time we were thinking it, we didn't know anything about it. So there's some capacity of the mind that is indeed knowing something in every moment. But mindfulness wasn't there. So what we're cultivating is not moments of experience. We're cultivating the recognition of those moments. That's mindfulness. So that's the right view. That's, that's, the, that's the view of what we're trying to do here. Uh, the first right view that you might ask yourself is, do you know what's going on in this moment? You know, we're either lost in thought or we're, we're kind of present. Okay, that's the first right view. The second right view is, do you really know what's going on? <laughs> Me, meaning, are you aware of the actual experience of this moment, or are you just have an idea of, well, I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in a room listening to Steve talk, answer questions, right? That's, that's, that's what you're doing, right? No. You're actually feeling the body and its posture. You're hearing the sounds come to you. Your mind is processing these sounds into something that you understand. Oh, well, that view of what's actually going on here takes a lot of steady attention and very precise insight, understanding. So once you hear that view of what's going on here and you practice, you can begin to see, oh, right, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. So... Uh, soon, uh, towards the end of the retreat, you'll get a sheet of, uh, you know, 20 right views for meditation that I've that I've compiled from Sayadaw's teaching. So then you can then you can go online and listen to the talk on right views. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's a right view. It helps guides our practice because you know we hear instructions for a half hour and then we practice for 24 hours. It's like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, remember what he said. Every moment something's being known. Try to remember to be, try to remember to recognize what is being known. Watch your attitude of mind in relationship to what is being known and in relationship to your idea of how to practice. What is practice? Sometimes people come from other traditions and there's, there's many kinds of practices that people do. But in this practice, we're just saying, try to remember to recognize the present moment. 
But, you know, some people chant mantras and some people have visualizations and some people are doing loving kindness and some people are <laughs> scanning the body with, for sensations. And, but, and those are all good techniques and practices from one teacher or another or different traditions. But in this practice, what we're trying to cultivate is understanding. Awareness or observation that leads to awareness, awareness leading to information, information being massaged in the mind to knowledge, and knowledge eventually, when it's when we uh, inhabit it, uh, is expressed as wisdom. We act wisely, not causing ourselves or others harm. That's the short version. Any other questions? Yeah, Bhante. So the question is, last question and answer period, I mentioned several qualities of right attitude, right, or skillful attitude. Uh, yeah, and then you're asking me, how does that relate to the three, the three kinds of samasankapa that the Buddha talked about? <clears throat> I don't know what those three are, so I couldn't possibly begin to answer you. But I can tell you what the... the uh, right attitudes uh, or the skillful attitudes of mind that I mentioned last time. Now you'll notice that, and I, as I mentioned last time, Sairotejaniya doesn't tell you what the right attitudes are so much as he says, if there's a wrong attitude, notice that. <laughs> okay? So, but if you listen carefully, what, you, what you'll understand is the skillful attitudes towards practice or towards, in this way of practice, is to be open, interested, hello, he does. I know he does. <laughs> but uh, the qualities that I see that make up these right attitudes is being open, being interested, allowing, accepting, acknowledging, being willing to be here for the present moment, to, you know, it's, it's, more, it's more like this, not focusing, receiving the present moment, willingly, openly, interestedly. Right? So that's... And I don't know how that relates to right thought or samasankapa, but it is. You can see that we couldn't do those attitudes of mind if we didn't establish them with thought in our mind. Well, if you see ill will and you see... Oh, I mean, if you, <coughs> if you see ill will, if you see aversion, of course, that's not skillful attitude, right? So some someone asked earlier... To this retreat, well, what about loving kindness or compassion? Haven't heard you say anything, asking Sarah, haven't heard you say anything about compassion <coughs> or, or uh, karuna. And he said, no, he doesn't, he doesn't teach it as a kind of a, uh, a singular practice. But my way of understanding what Saito is teaching is, if you look at, well, what are the qualities of compassion or loving kindness? It's being, you know, when you have that relationship, compassionate relationship with someone. You're open, you're receiving them, you're caring, you're interested, you're compassionate. You're, I mean, not compassionate, you're, you're care, you're interested, you're, you're responsive to, and you're willing and you're, you're genuine about it. Well, all of those qualities are in right view, or in right attitude, I mean. Without those same loving, compassionate qualities, you wouldn't have right attitude. So I, I see that the, the way of practicing is a very loving, compassionate way that Sayadaw is encouraging us to practice. Without him saying, practice loving kindness or practice compassion, we have to do that in having our right attitude. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the pathological. <laughs> yeah, we are kind of 
uh, at least that's what comes up in the groups a lot, is all the, the challenging, difficult, uh, maybe unwholesome or, uh, as you said, pathological. And that's a little hard, but uh, nevertheless, I get it. I get it. And what to do with uh, when love or compassion or gratitude or joy arises. I'm going to give you the brief answer is, what do you do? Same thing. Right, same thing. Now, what, <clears throat> you know, what, it, what is it that I'm asking you to do? Or what is these, you know, be aware of what your experience is. Recognize that. Remember to recognize that. And then know that there is this awareness of, in this case, love or compassion. Or there's an awareness of generosity or gratitude, what, whatever it is. And, of course, the feeling in the heart at that time is very pleasant. Soft, pleasant, enjoyable. The sensations in the body are very subtle, usually subtler than when you have anger or irritation. <laughs> you know, And the story that goes along with it of like, oh, you feel so compassionate towards other people in the retreat or towards suffering beings or you have a lot of love, genuine love and caring for people in your life. That's the story of loving kindness, or that's the story of your feeling of compassion. Don't get in, I would say, you don't need to get involved or be careful about just getting involved in the story of your loving kindness or compassion. Recognize that that's what's going on. We're not trying to get rid of it, just as we're not trying to get rid of uh, anger and frustration and disappointment. We're trying to understand. So we're, we're, we're recognizing, oh, this is love or this is compassion and we're trying to understand or we're, we're paying attention to it it's like oh what are the conditions that give rise to this how did this happen how does this make you feel etc etc now what sometimes happens and I'm just not that I've heard it in this retreat but what sometimes happens is when someone's practicing here in this and they they get a uh, you know kind of a spontaneous arising of compassion or flood of love or joy or gratitude running through their mind, then they want to take that and hold on to it and amplify it. And so they start doing their formal loving-kindness practice or they start doing their formal you know, uh, reflections on the Buddha or whatever it is they do. Well, that is a way of kind of holding on to it, holding on. You, you, you lose the perception that, oh, awareness of object and you get lost in the object and you cultivate it. And there's nothing wrong with cultivating abundant loving-kindness and abundant compassion. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. But what we're doing in this retreat with this instruction is practicing to develop understanding. Okay? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, let me just let me just comment on what you first said. It's true. If there's no aversion in the mind, then there's at least friendly you know, it might be loving, it might be compassionate, or there's some element of that. Uh, it might be more equanimous, more equanimity. Again, what we're doing in this practice is, is observe, recognizing the awareness that understands the nature of equanimity, the nature of non-aversion. As Sayadaw mentioned in one group, you know, there's non-aversion, and then there's active loving-kindness, which is more intentional development of loving-kindness. But what you mentioned is, well, when there's non-aversion, okay, or non-attachment, there's... Yeah, sure. You know, there's... Um, you know, there's love and compassion and there's generosity and there's joy and there's bliss and there's ecstasy and there's... There's all kinds of spiritual goodies. <laughs> right? That come. You know, that we've heard about or that we look for or we're hoping for or... You know, we take drugs to kind of get close to or something. I don't know, whatever it is. But there's, there's spiritual goodies out there. 
And when they, as you develop the continuity of your mindful awareness, those spiritual goodies will happen. It's not like you've got to aim for them. They'll happen automatically. They will come. You can't stop them from coming. They'll come. But they're so enjoyable, they're so pleasant, they're so sometimes very unusual that we get fascinated by them. We, we indulge in them. We like them. We look for them. We want them. You know, as one of, one of <laughs> my students said, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. Because, because, you know, you have a good sitting and then you look for it for the rest of the retreat. And it's, it's not coming. It's, it's over. It's gone. But you think, oh, you know, in the midst of that good sitting, you think, wow, I finally arrived. Yeah, this is the way it's going to be the rest of the retreat. No, it isn't. <laughs> but we keep looking for it. So when, in this practice, when those spiritual, any of those spiritual goodies arise, and it can be just calm, it can be kind of collectedness. It can be a sense of effortless energy. It could be clarity. It could be love or compassion or gratitude or anything. It's really exuberant faith. Uh, when any of those arise, we want to see them as, you know, I hate to burst your balloon, but just another object being known. Just bliss being known. Just ecstasy being known. Just, you know, effortless energies being known. Why? We want to understand. Yeah, you, you're going to experience it. You're going to feel it. You're going to know those pleasant feelings, mental feelings of all those spiritual goodies. But we want to understand them so that we don't get hooked. We don't get stuck. We don't get, you know, as we say, those, those spiritual goodies are scenic turnouts on the route. <laughs> They're not the destination. Okay. <laughs> it's good to laugh about it because it's really painful, yeah. <laughs> we got to let it go, you know. Please, could you say something about the momentum Sayadaw talks about? Momentum. Yes. You know, I asked Sayadaw that question in one of, his, one of his groups. What's this momentum you're talking about and how do we recognize it and what's actually going on there? So I'm going to give you my, my idea and what I can remember of what he said. But if you really want to know, you have to ask him. But we know at the beginning of the retreat, we have to. it seems like we have to make a lot of effort to remember, to recognize the present moment. But now after, you know, four or five days, it's easier, isn't it? What's actually happening? Well, you know, we're cultivating skillful habit of remembering. We're slowly beginning to put aside our deeply conditioned habits of worry and frustration and despair and de or you know de depression or you know self-judgment we, we see them and we don't get quite so entangled in them for so long and we're able to sustain or string together more moments of remembering to recognize the present moment well that's the beginning of momentum but what happens with momentum because there are the five faculties that Sayadaw talks about confidence, perseverance, remembering, stability of mind, understanding. These are the five faculties. What happens as we get more continuity to the remembering, the mindfulness, is, well, we get more stability of mind. Stability of mind is not just st stability. It kind of collects the mind so that the mind is more powerful. It's like a magnifying lens. So when you look at your ordinary, very familiar, mundane experiences of the body and the mind through a more powerful lens that has arisen due to some momentum, then everything looks different. So when you look at when you look at your hand, you see a hand. But if you look at it through a powerful magnifying lens, well, you see a lot more detail. You understand it differently, don't you? If you took a piece of tissue and put it under a microscope, you'd be seeing a lot more detail. It wouldn't even look like a hand. And you'd have a lot more of an accurate understanding of what it is that you're actually seeing here. So the same happens as we develop this collectedness of mind through the continuity of mindfulness. The mind becomes more stable. We see in more detail with more refinement
what is actually going on in our minds. So the familiar stories of our minds, our self-judgments and our fears and memories and aspirations and all those things, familiar, but we see them with a lot more subtlety, nuance. We have a different understanding of them. This is where wisdom comes in. We're looking at the same stuff. You know, same old kinds of thoughts and feelings and reactions and memories and plans and aspiration. But because the mind has changed, it's become more powerful. It's become cleaner. When there's not so much distraction, there's not so much dispersion, there's not so much wandering mind, it's more collected. Then we see things differently. We understand them with more, more accurately. Is that what is that what Sayadaw said, Matat? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did I ever describe lying down meditation? <clears throat> so the way to do a lying down meditation is find your bed. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> no, Sayadaw suggests that we do that we that we take one period of time a day to do some lying down meditation or try to develop uh, mindfulness and awareness while lying down. Uh, partly because um, it takes less physical energy, but it's very hard. But we spend a lot of time lying down. So we don't want to just lose it every time we lie down. So it's really cultivating, it's, it's intentionally cultivating the capacity to stay present for a very pleasant, usually pleasant, uh, subtle uh, experience lying down. So um, why to do it is because it's a posture where the mind is and if you don't learn to pay attention to the mind you can you can really have a pretty tossy-turny uh, unpleasant lying down experience. But with awareness of course like anything else the mind will calm down you'll see things more clearly etc. And the way to do it is of course to you're really you're watching your mind, and again, there's moment-to-moment experience to be known, to be recognized, and uh, to try to recognize both the knowing of it, the awareness of it, and the quality of the of the experience. Um, the trick is to stay awake, right? I mean, that that's the trick. So, Sayadaw didn't give this. Sayadaw didn't give this technique. But one technique that I've used is to when you're laying down on your back is to hold your hand up at your side. And you can either hold it still or you can slowly move it back and forth. And as you move it back and forth or as you hold it up, it, you, you'll, you'll, there'll be more sensations right there. Huh? So there's something a little more distinctive. You can just sweep your, your attention through the body or you can just try to watch just the mind, the awareness of the mind. But if you move your, thing, you move your hand, you've got some sensations. And when you're just about to go under and fall asleep, your hand will fall over and wake you up. And, uh, you know, after about the third time of that, you better get up because you're going under. Yeah. So that's that's one way I've, that I've done it. That's right. When I say understand, to understand something, I mean that not through thinking and not by trying to, but as you observe, and this is, this is where the mindfulness, the, the remembering to recognize the present it's just, what's this? What's this? What's this? What's this? And in time, you gather a lot of information about these different mental states. You begin to recognize the different mental states. And as you acquire more uh, uh, online time with your mental states, you will grow in understanding their nature. How they arise, when they arise, how they make you feel, what kind of thoughts arise from them, how long they last, whether they're skillful or not. You know, if you really wanted to understand, you know, I don't know what you have for wild animals around here, but we'll just take a cow. If you want to understand the nature... <laughs> If you want to understand the nature of a cow, 
you could go online and say, cows, tell me all I know. Wikipedia will come up and give you all kinds of stuff. But that's just knowledge. Somebody else's information, huh? But if you want to know, you just stand out here by the field and you pick one cow and watch them all day. At the end of the day, you'll know a lot about cows. Right? Just from observing. You're not trying to figure out anything. You're not trying to explain what they do, why they do, anything. You're just observing. And your mind will make sense of it. Your mind will understand what's going on. And the same thing, we're doing the same thing with our cow mind or monkey mind, however you want to review your mind. You know, it's like we're just watching. We're just watching what it does. It goes here, it goes there, for this long, that long. This is what it feels like. This is what it likes, doesn't like. Blah, 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 blah. We're just watching. Eventually, with, we get enough information that the mind puts it together. Now remember, it puts it together because we've heard right view. Remember, in the past, somewhere, we've heard about right view. And your mind will start putting it together. With all of this information that I've gathered about this monkey mind, how do I suffer less? Oh, the Buddha said, Utejaniya uh, said, okay. And your mind will put it together. You're right. It's not something that you do with intention, but it's something that happens through the uh, collectedness or the activity of the five faculties. When there's an... Well, you said if there was an unpleasant feeling, would it be helpful to try to understand something about it? I would say if there's an unpleasant feeling, if your attention is being called to unpleasantness uh, in the mind or in the body, then I would, I would recognize that, attend to it, and watch the awareness of it. Because when unpleasantness arises, often we have a reaction of aversion, right? And that then becomes a new object. You're no longer looking at the unpleasantness. You're looking at, I'm doing a three-dimensional or, uh, <laughs> instruction here. Here's the object, unpleasantness, right? And there's a recognition of awareness. This is the five, five faculties at work here, right? And so you recognize, oh, this unpleasantness. Then you may notice that because it's so unpleasant, there's a filter here of aversion through which awareness is looking when it looks at this unpleasantness. So now, this filter of aversion is the new object that you're paying attention to. So now you've got aversion, and awareness is observing aversion. Well, you know what it's like when you get really irritated, really impatient, really angry? You get impatient and angry and irritated that you're impatient, irritated, and angry. right? So that, now you're looking at aversion, and the awareness is... Is, is, is aware of this aversion, but we really want to get rid of it, right? Is there anybody that doesn't want to get rid of unpleasantness? No, of course. That, that comes with the territory. So what happens is our attitude of mind embedded in this awareness gets kind of... Kind of like, well, you know, we kind of like want to look at that aversion with so much intensity that we kind of nuke it. So it's like, <laughs> poof, gone. So there's actually a wrong attitude in the mind. The attitude in the mind has now become, I want to get rid of this. I'll look at this, but I want to get rid of it. So the attitude in the mind is one of aversion, isn't it? It's one of uh, disliking or uh, trying to get rid of or critical uh, critical of this experience, or maybe we're we're uh, critical of ourself. <laughs> you know, critical of ourself here. <laughs> Whatever, however you do that, and that's what we're looking at. So we want to be careful. That's why Sayadaw says over and over again: check your attitude of mind. The object isn't important. It can be pleasant. It can be unpleasant. It can be spiritual goody. It can be depraved mind from the lower realms doesn't matter. What's important is what's your attitude of mind as you're observing it. <coughs> Something like that.
Sayadaw didn't say it quite like that, but that's my experience. Maybe not yours yet. Wait, wait a minute. The awareness is thoughts? Awareness is not thoughts. You can put you can put words to it. Yeah, we can talk about awareness in that way. I am aware of X Y Z, but awareness itself is not constructed out of thought. Okay, here we go again. Hold your hand out in front of you like this. Right? Become aware of what that feels like. You know, you don't have to think about awareness it, right you don't have to say okay awareness do your job i want i want you to feel this thing you know no awareness knows what the sensations are in the hand in the arm don't they doesn't it it's not from thought we use thought to to direct awareness or to cultivate more remembering or understand whatever it is that we're we're working with but awareness itself is not it's not created by thought, or it's not, it's not a thought-based experience. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Uh, uh. You go to the dining room and get a cup of tea. Uh... This is called a multiple hindrance attack <laughs> or a multiple defilement uh, assault. And here it is. You know, it's like the unpleasantness with aversion and my aversion to the aversion and I feel, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do now and I feel doubtful that this works and I want to go home and maybe I should just go get a cup of tea, right? So it's all happening here. <laughs> How do you know it's all happening here? Because there's awareness of it. Recognize this, and all this can just—it—it—it's it, got its life of its own. But recognize this awareness of this multiple hindrance attack, right? Now, I'm going to kind of pick up on something that I was talking about this morning in a group. Sometimes, when an emotional storm arises, and it can be multiple hindrance attack, it can be some trauma from your childhood that just kind of comes up now for no good reason except that it's time to see, be seen and what you what you see is this cauldron this this you know this in, entangled snarly mess of pain and suffering you know and and it presents itself as you know some emotion fear sadness shame humiliation vulnerability something and that's that's the, that's the cover of it. And you, when you look at that, you go, oh my God, this is terrible. You know, and maybe you add a layer of aversion to that, but somehow you keep, you, keep, you keep watching it. And slowly, you begin to recognize the vulnerability, and as you, as you kind of peel off the vulnerability, or you, you get used to it, or you, you, you learn to be non-reactive to it, then more of this knot, this psychophysical knot, comes into view. The layers and the pixels and the threads of, well... Memories, feelings, intentions, judgments, you know, a lifetime of accumulated debris around, you know, shame or, you know, humiliation or fear. And as your, as your awareness becomes more steady, more momentum, more steady, you can watch this thing without getting involved in it, without kind of trying to get rid of it. With having a more balanced awareness, you know, the awareness is very uh, clear, uh, non-reactive, very equanimous, and you're keeping an eye on this because if you get an attitude in there of "I want to fix it, I want to figure it out, I want to get rid of it, I'm going to explain it, I'm going <laughs> to finally, I'm getting to look at my father issues." Uh, no, 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 don't, don't get any agenda about it. Just, just noticing, and slowly it'll all come into view and it'll unravel. You know, and so what what makes it so painful is it's so tight and we're so identified with it that it's me. This is 
my fear, my shame, my whatever, right? But as you, you it, so mindfulness or awareness is like a solvent. You pour this solvent on this psychophysical knot and all of the glue that's holding it together loosens up and you get to see the pixels of phenomena making up this psychophysical knot. Okay, so now you've got some understanding of, oh, this is what's going on here. Okay, then you get distracted by dinner. <laughs> I go to dinner, and then you come back to look at it again, and <laughs> it's all falling back together. Okay, and you think, what a waste of time that was. <laughs> no, no. Why? Because, because the sense of self. The sense of self that was held by all of this stuff has been dissolved. You still have the memories, you still have the judgments, you still have your fantasies, you still have you still have all that stuff, but you're not so identified with it. And that's where the freedom comes. That's where the sense of relief comes. You're not identified with it. You're gonna have the memories forever, but you're gonna have a different relationship with them. Was that the question? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For for a few, for the first few hundred times. <laughs> no, no. It, it, of course, it's very gradual. You 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 just you know there are places as you in the unfolding where you come up against more fear or more vulnerability or more, you know, you just run out of energy or you just, you know, and so you take a break, you back off, you go get a cup of tea for a week or two or a month, and then you come back and it'll, it'll appear again. It'll appear again. Wherever there's holding in the mind, it's going to come into view eventually. So we don't have to go looking for it. We don't have to go looking for our issues, so to speak. They'll, they'll come into view. And then when they do, then we get to look at them over and over over and over again and it's a very gradual process of uncovering and r- establishing a new relationship with all that phenomena The mind likes to tease you with this fear. You know this fear. You feel comfortable. It's even better to have this fear instead of waiting for another enlightenment. Come on. Hey, whoa. It was really interesting to see that I would like to have a tea, but the mind thought, no, not yet. Come on. There is another fear. The fear came back and back again. Yeah, might might as well have a good emotional trauma to look look at. Yeah, this this is a, this is one of the da- one of the uh, this is this is one of the dangers of you know along the path is we get familiar with our psychological personality structure stuff and we just say well this is the way I am you know I'm a jerk uh, I'm. A, I'm always going to be a jerk, and I've got these traumas, and I've got these limitations, and deal with it, you guys. I'm dealing with it. You deal with it. And we take it for granted. We assume there's some solidity there, that there's some inevitability there, and we stop looking. Like you say, we get familiar. We get comfortable with our pain. Yeah, this is my pain. This is my trauma. This is my you know, personal history shit. You know what? Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah. We we get very identified with our story, you know, because as we come to more understanding of how we are, the way we are, we get a story about it, and we get identified with our story. And there's some badge of survival. You know, this is my confirmation of survival. 
I got these traumas and these vulnerabilities and these, you know, emotional challenges that I've lived with for my whole life, and I'm I'm intending to live with them for the rest of my life. But, you know, I I sometimes say, you know, sometimes when we come to to practice and we get into practice, we're looking for something special. We're looking for something special. I mean, if this is just going to be ordinary mundane stuff, well, I don't need to go to a retreat for ordinary mundane stuff, right? I can stay home and be miserable. Right. Okay. So, <clears throat> but what 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 where the real work takes place is things that you do, the most ordinary, mundane, repetitive experiences of life that you take for granted. That's the gold mine that you're overlooking. Whether it's brushing your teeth, or going to the toilet, or eating a meal, or <laughs> checking your apps, whatever it is, because we're so habituated to it that we do it on automatic pilot, and we reaffirm, this is the dangerous part, we reaffirm all those beliefs and all those assumptions and all that conditioning that led us to this in the first place. And we just silently and unconsciously reaffirm all of those wrong views, sense of self, mistaken beliefs, and they get reaffirmed over and over and over again by the way we brush our teeth, without awareness. So it's take the ordinary things of life, take the most ordinary, repetitive, mundane things of life, pay attention to them, and they become fertile soil for awakening. Really. Yeah. This is a slippery slope here. <laughs> because, yeah, there's some, there does seem to be some, um, some spiritual traditions that do something like spiritual bypassing. Do you know spiritual bypassing? You kind, of, you kind of skip all your personal growth work and just go right to the enlightenment. <laughs> You know, or or spiritual goodies, and you just kind of avoid or or don't deal with uh, a lot of the uh, personal issues that make it possible to live as a human being in harmony with others. Right? I think that's a misunderstanding of those traditions of practice, because I've practiced in those traditions, and it's not it's not a it's not a path of uh, personality development and fulfillment and uh, things like that. It's learning of the nature of the mind, the power of the mind, the collectedness of mind. And maybe, <clears throat> maybe temporarily, or uh, for a sustained but still limited period of time, we don't deal with those personality issues. And we do learn the power of mind, the power of a concentrated mind. We do develop insight for liberation, if you will, to some degree. Um, Along the path, of course, you do have to deal with a lot of personality stuff. But you can, you can, you can, the process of awakening is not about personality massaging. There's quite a difference between personality transformation and, you know, uh, spiritual transcendence. You know, and in, 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 as, as mindfulness and, and spiritual practices have been used in the West or are being used in the West, there's a little confusion between the two, and there's a lot of uh, overlap between the two. But, you know, we are not renunciates in the sense of living in a monastery or living in seclusion for the rest of our life. We haven't made that kind of vow. We're ordinary people, householders with, you know, careers and kids and, you know, responsibilities and obligations. And so it's better, I think, that we get. Uh, a spiritual practice, or that we we have some some one foot in the spiritual practices that uh, really relate to our daily life, and this practice that I that that uh, Utejaniya is teaching seems to be, in my in my humble opinion, seems to be 
particularly suited for um, those of us who think a lot and have a very busy life and also have a very strong commitment to awakening. Because we're not going to run off to the monastery for five years. I mean, some, some, one of us or two, a few of us might for a period of time, but a lot of us are going to be engaged in the world in, uh, with uh, money, uh, relationships, uh, commitments, obligations, responsibilities. So how do you deal with that stuff? It takes a lot of thinking. Well, how do, we, how do we make thinking a practice or how do we make our practice include all of that thinking, all of those commitments, all of that responsibility, all of it? Well, you have to be aware of them and you have to be aware of the awareness of them because if you're just aware of them, you'll get, you, it can lead to a lot of you know, personality uh, massaging. You know, kind of sculpting. Not that that's that's not bad. You know, we all need. <laughs> I certainly do need a lot of personality sculpting. You know, just kind of like be a little more mm, easy to get along with, a little more self knowledgeable, a little more uh, skillful in communications. Yeah. You know, all of us have some limitations in that area, but let's not mistake that for liberation. Is that? Speak to your comment, kind of. Yes. Okay. Oh, well, I'm going to see if there's anybody. Uh, th- th- you two have asked questions. Anybody else with a question? Anyone who hasn't asked a question yet? And if you don't know how to voice your question, just how about a topic? You got a topic you want me to riff on, or if you feel embarrassed or shy or you know un- don't like to speak in public, tell the person beside you and let them ask. You know what they said, you know, when the Buddha was about to die, you know, and there was uh, all his followers were around, and he said, you know, I'm about to die, or something like that. And he said, if you got any questions, now's the time to ask them, because, uh, hey, I'm going to be gone here soon. So, anybody got any questions? Nobody had any questions. So he said, no questions? I know you've heard the teachings, but isn't there any any, qu- any more questions? So he asked the third, anybody got any questions? No questions. He said, oh, because then he said, well, tell a person beside you, if you, if you don't want to speak to the, the Buddha, I'm, I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about the Buddha, then tell the person beside you, let them ask. No questions. So then he died. As soon as he died, somebody said, I wonder what he meant by... Uh... <laughs> and they've been arguing about that ever since. So we got another seven minutes. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. What's the end result? The next ten years? Uh, It seems like, uh, you know, the Dharma path, we might get an idea of like, oh, it goes here, 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 and ends up there. But that's just an idea. And my experience seems to be like, well, if you take one step on the Dharma path, uh, you may think you, you know what the next step is, but after taking the first step, it's going to be a different step. And when you take the second step, then you'll know where the third step is. Then the fourth step, you know, we might think, I know the path, it's, it's, it's right, it's from here to there, and here we go, boom, 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 we get the first step, and suddenly the path veers off to the left, and you go, whoa, I got to go, you know, so don't get too far ahead of yourself, you know, stay in the present, stay with your current level of awareness, understanding, faith, commitment, whatever knowledge you have, and next step. For all of you right now, this is, this is your next step, this retreat. You know, what you're going to do after this retreat is going to have to include in some way what happened to this retreat to you, to your idea of practice, your, your development of mind, everything. It's going to be different. It's going to go in a direction that you didn't have before you came to this retreat. You didn't know it was going to get affected like this. Okay, so don't get too far ahead. You know, stay with the present and it'll, the next, the next step on the path of, on your development of the path to awakening will appear. Sorry, 
lot of talk. You said in the last couple of days we're starting to have a lot of talk. Oh, are we going to be allowed to talk? Uh, I don't know. Haven't we haven't talked? We haven't discussed it behind the doors yet. So, but I mean, Sayadaw likes to likes to give people a couple of days of limited period of time in limited place with limited people. But <laughs> it's not a free for all. But uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll bring it up as a topic with him, and we can he can he can. Give us guidance on that. So. Yeah, so yeah. it's been helpful for other people on other retreats to take some time to have to to try to practice this kind of mindful awareness while speaking or while engaged in dialogue. Yeah. Okay, comment. Yes, Les. Secret teaching here. So who is it that responds when in a dark room you hear the question, is there anybody there? And you say, yeah, me. That's the whole purpose of practice. No. Uh, Habit. Habit answers. Yeah, habit. You have the habit of identifying with this body, with this mind, with these thoughts, with these feelings. You have the habit of being identified with them. They're mine. My feeling, my body, my thoughts, my... Right? So when somebody says, who are you? You say, well, I'm me. Habit. But as you hear, right view, and as you practice awareness and see the, the, the flow of life how really, how conditioned and impersonal it really is, then conventionally speaking, you'd say, yeah, this is me. But experientially, you'd say, wow, this that appears to be me is deeply conditioned by things that are completely out of my control, right? So it's like, well, you know, I'll I'll ask you a, a, a simpler question. When you're sitting, you know, and you've been sitting for half an hour, 40 minutes, and the body begins to hurt, right? And, you, and the thought arises in the mind, I should, I should move, right? And then there's a little dialogue set up in the mind. Should I move? No, I shouldn't move. Yeah, but this is painful. Yeah, but, you know, good yogis don't move, right? Okay. Yeah, but have some compassion for yourself. I mean, come on, this hurts. So if you move now, then you can sit for another 20 minutes, okay? You know, and then say, no, 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 I'm not going to sit because, you know, it's, it's only been 40 minutes. I want to get to an hour. Yeah, resolve, get a lot of resolve. And then you say, okay, yeah, but this is, my, my old ski injury on my knee is really, I might, I might never walk again if I can sit. <laughs> You know, so fear, fear comes and talks to you for a while. You might never walk again. And then your, your diligence says, no, I'm going to be good yogi. I'm going to keep a good meditator. I'm going to keep sitting. And then somewhere when the bell rings or before the bell rings, you move. Who moved? Who moved? Who moved? Yeah, there's some intention in the mind that was conditioned by some mental state. Maybe it was fear, made you move, made, made, had the intention and moved the body. But clearly, it wasn't you. No, in a conventional sense, yeah, I moved, I shifted my posture. But when you get down to looking at what was the process that led to the movement, there's no person there. It's just conditions, thoughts, feelings, you know, beliefs, assumptions, intentions, move. So that's that's what we're looking at. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.